Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. For those of you who do not already know me, I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I want to make sure that any of you who has not seen Chinese American Exclusion, Inclusion, which is a really fabulous uh, history of Chinese in America closing after this next weekend, that you um, run and make sure that you see it before it closes this weekend. Uh, I also would like to draw your attention to a few other great exhibitions on view right now, Audubon's Aviary on our second floor, the third round of our complete collection of the flock, uh, Lincoln and the Jews, which opened recently to huge acclaim, fascinating exhibition uh, on Lincoln's relationship with very many Jews in, uh, during his time period, um, much, much beyond anything that's been elucidated or uncovered before. And Freedom Journey 1965 photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March, which has been extended through June. I uh, also want to remind anyone who's not yet a member to become one. Your membership really supports all the good work that we do at this institution, and um, we appreciate everyone's membership, so please do join if you haven't already. Tonight's program, The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Program. Um, that's the heart of our public programs, as, all, as you all know, and as always, I would like to acknowledge and thank Bernard Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and speakers to this auditorium. I'd also like to recognize and thank uh, a number of trustees in our audience this evening. Above all, our chair, Pam Schaffler. I'd like to thank Pam for all she has done on behalf of this great institution. And also acknowledge trustees Helen Appel, Susan Danilo, Scott Delman, Glenn Louie, Michael Weisberg, and Eric Wallach, and thank them for all their hard work and generosity on behalf of this great institution. Thank you. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach standing mics to my left and to my right in the aisles. We do that so that everyone in the audience can hear your question, as well as the speaker on the stage and those who listen to our podcasts. Uh, following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are really thrilled to welcome Margaret McMillan, the warden of St. Anthony's College and a professor of international history at the University of Oxford. Prior to taking on the wardenship, Professor McMillan was provost of Trinity College and professor of history at the University of Toronto. She's written numerous critically acclaimed books, including Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, for which she was the first woman to win the Samuel Johnson Prize, and Nixon and Mao, The Week That Changed the World. Her most recent book is The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914. She is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and an officer of the Order of Canada. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Margaret McMillan.
Well, thank you so much for that nice introduction, and um, thanks to the New York Historical Society for inviting me. It's a great privilege to be here, and it's also wonderful to see such a lively interest in history. Um, occasionally, we get gloomy in the historical profession and think history is dead, but here you all are looking very lively, so clearly not dead at all. Um, I'm going to talk tonight, of course, about the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, before I start, I think I'll say there's one question I've come to dread, um, and that is, someone will get up and say, in most of my lectures, um, you've talked about how complicated the origins of the war were. Can you say in one sentence how it started? <laughs> I can't do it. I'm just warning you now in case anyone has that question up his or her, her sleeve. The First World War is one of those historical events on which there is no consensus, and I think very unlikely that there ever will be. There are no great piles of documents waiting to be discovered. There may still be some material in the Serbian archives. There may still be some material in the Russian archives. But on the whole, the documents that exist, the telegrams, the memos, the conversations, the diaries that come from that period have pretty much all been explored and used. So, so I think we're not going to find something that is going to radically change our views of the war. But what we will do, I think, is go on arguing about it. And I confidently expect that 100 years from now, at the 200th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War, there'll be someone standing here at the New York Historical Society saying we still don't have a consensus. It's been estimated that in English there are something like 30,000 works on the origins of the war. And I think it's quite possible. I mean, if you look at what's come out, almost from the moment the war started, the work began to come out. Government-sponsored selective publications of documents. They put out pamphlets explaining why they were innocent of the origins of the war, but everyone else, of course, was guilty, particularly those on the other side. And the debate has gone on ever since. There are enormous causes of the First World War, enormous possibilities, and very, very difficult to assign responsibility to any one cause, any one person, or any one country. It is one of those events which I think is worryingly very, very difficult to explain. So what I'd like to do is look, first of all, at what Europe was like in 1914, and then say something about the alternatives before Europe, because one of the dangers with the First World War is that we look back and we can see the pressures building up, we can see the national rivalries, we can see the military plans, we can see the competition for colonies or the economic competition. And when we look back, we say, well, the war was bound to happen. There were so many possible factors there, it had to happen. And I think that is doing history the wrong way around. We are taking something that happened and assuming that it was bound to happen. And I think very little in history is inevitable. I think, in fact, there usually are alternatives. If you look at the Cold War, for example, at the time, a lot of us felt that there was bound to be a hot conflict between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc, and we certainly came very close to it. I think of, I still remember the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was just starting as a student at university, when it did look as if the world was about to be blown to pieces, or large parts of the world were about to be blown to pieces, and yet it didn't happen. And I think it's always important to remember that there are choices made by political leaders, by those who can either, in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, push the button, or those who in 1914 could set the war plans in motion. And so I want to go back a bit and look at what Europe was like and look at the forces for peace, because we tend to forget those. But Europe in 19, 
1900, between 1900 and 1914, was a continent, certainly with tensions, certainly with difficulties, but it was a continent which, in my view, had alternatives before it, really almost up to the last moment towards the end of July 1914. Those alternatives were still there. It was only in the last few days of July and then the first two or three days of August that Europe went down that road to war. I don't think up to that point it was inevitable. I think it could have been avoided, and I think there were a great many people in Europe who want to, wanted to avoid it. Europeans themselves were very conscious in the years before 1914 of how far they had come. They could really, in their own lifetimes, see what had happened to Europe. Tremendous prosperity, tremendous progress, and a great deal of peace. If you were older, you could look back to really an unbroken period of peace, almost since 1815, when the Napoleonic Wars came to an end. Now, that wasn't complete. There were wars in Europe between 1815 and 1914, but they were limited for the most part, to wars between two protagonists, or two antagonists, with the exception of the Crimean War, which did involve coalition war. Those wars were short. Most of the wars in Europe in the 19th century were over in six weeks, and they were decisive. They left a decisive result, and peace was made after them. And so Europeans could, with some justification, look back at that century before 1914 and think Europe had moved away from making war as a tool of state, had moved away from war, was no longer going to do it. Now, there were plenty of wars around the world, but they were often colonial wars. The great deal of the fighting done before 1914 was done outside Europe. The Russo-Japanese War, for example, um, wars in the Middle East, wars in Africa, wars in Asia. And for a lot of Europeans, those were less civilized parts of the world. And we may disagree with them, and I think we would disagree with them today, but I think there was a sense that Europe was gradually moving beyond its very bloody past. That war was becoming, by 1900, for a lot of Europeans, improbable, if not unthinkable. It was just something that Europe no longer did. And why would Europe want to do it? Europe was enjoying prosperity. Europe was progressing. And again, people could measure this in their own lifetimes. They could look at the ways in which the cities had become cleaner, in which water had been purified, in which disease was being conquered. People were living much longer. The quality of life was much better. People were making more money. And, and of course, this wasn't everywhere. People weren't all enjoying this prosperity. But Europe generally was moving ahead. And this is something Europeans were very conscious of. Europe was also the center of the world in so many ways. It was the political center. European countries collectively through their empires, controlled much of the rest of the world. They had parceled up pretty much the whole of Africa. They parceled up pretty much the whole of Asia, with the exception of China, Japan, Thailand. They controlled a lot of Latin America through informal empires. Europe was the world's leader in trade, the world's leader in industrial output. Europe was where you went if you wanted to borrow money for major projects. Europe is where you went if you wanted to find out the latest in science, science and technology. Europe was where you went for the latest fashions, um, artistic, clothing, um, whatever you want to think of. And so Europe really was, in a way, able to think of itself as a very important center of the world and a part which, in which people assumed that the very evident progress and prosperity which they could see around them would go on. They looked ahead into the 20th century, believing, many of them, that it would be more of the same. Stefan Zweig, whom some of you have probably read, in his wonderful memoir, The World of Yesteryear, wrote, and this was, he was writing in 1941, 
He looked back at the age before 1914, the age of his youth, childhood and youth, and he called it the golden age of security. He said, people no more believed in the possibility of barbaric relapses, such as wars between the nations of Europe, than they believed in ghosts and witches. Our fathers were doggedly convinced of the infallibly binding power of tolerance and conciliation. And that was a very widespread view. And we tend to, to forget just how widespread that view was and how strong the forces of peace were. And again, as Europeans looked at their own world, they, they saw European economies getting more and more linked, European society in many ways getting more and more linked thanks to better communications. This was the age, the beginning of the age of mass tourism. Europeans were traveling to each other's countries. Um, Europeans were intermarrying, as of course they had always done. But there were a great many family ties throughout Europe before the First World War. Not just among the royal families, although those, those are probably the ones that are most famous, but among the middle classes as well. Robert Graves, who people often think of one of the most English of poets of this period, had a German mother. And half his family came from Germany, and he was going to end up fighting in the First World War against a number of his German cousins. In 1914, the ambassadors of Russia, Austria, Hungary, and Germany were first cousins. They were going to end up on different sides. And there were those like Norman Angel, a very interesting um, British journalist, self-made man who'd spent a lot of time actually working in the United States, wrote a very famous book called The, Grand, the Great Illusion, in which he said European statesmen are crazy if they think they can gain anything by going to war. No one gains from war. If Germany conquers Belgium, it won't gain an economic asset. It will simply have to deal with a resentful Belgium, much better to trade with Belgium, get the resources of Belgian industry. And so war for people like Norman Angel was becoming economically unprofitable and simply foolish. What was also happening in this period was the emergence of international institutions, it's the beginnings of um, some of the international institutions which we now know, um, international uh, courts. This is really the period in which the foundations of international law are laid. And by 1914, there was an international permanent court of arbitration in The Hague in a wonderful building which you can still see, which was financed by Andrew Carnegie, um, the great Scottish-American billionaire, who, who devoted a considerable portion of his very large for fortune to the cause of peace. International NGOs were growing, the Red Cross, of course, the most prominent among them. The international community was beginning to organize itself. So you had international organizations of jurists, of liberal parliamentarians, international church organizations, many of which talked not just about promoting peace, but finding ways to settle disputes short of war. Arbitration was talked of increasingly as a mechanism for settling disputes between nations. And you could really, I think, and people did think that they were seeing a trend. There was something like 300 arbitrations held between 1794 and 1914. This is when both parties, both nations, agree to submit a dispute over land or compensation if someone sinks someone's ship by mistake, uh, agree to submit a dispute to an international, a third party, and agree to be bound by the decision of that third party, which is how, of course, the Alaska Panhandle um, as I speak as a Canadian, was snatched from Canada and given to the United States. <laughs> but of those 300 arbitrations between 1794 and 1914, more than half were held after 1890. And so I think Europeans can be forgiven for thinking that they actually are seeing a trend towards a more peaceful world. 
And by 1914, there were very strong international peace organizations, a lot of the middle class, there had been international peace ballots, international peace marches, um, two big international disarmament conferences held in The Hague, which attracted a huge amount of public opinion. And there was another factor, which most people at the time thought was a force for peace, and that was something called the Second International. And this was the organization of the left-wing parties of the world, British Labour Party, the French Socialist Party, the German Social Democratic Party, which had, by 1914, a permanent bureau in Brussels. They met, delegates met from all the international socialist movements of the world. They met every two to three years in international congresses, and one of the things they talked about was what to do if a general war broke out. And they were adamantly opposed to such a war. They argued that such a war would use their men as cannon fodder, which indeed would have been the case and was the case, because... Most of Europe's armies, with the exception of the British Army, depended on conscription, which, of course, hit every level of society. They also argued that those who made the profits from such a war would not be them. It would be the people who owned the factories, the armaments factories, the investment bankers, the people who, who would, make the sinews of, of, would make the sinews that war needed. And so there was talk at the Congresses of Second International about how to prevent a war, and one weapon which a lot of people proposed, and which certainly seemed to have a great deal of potential, was the general strike. If, when war came close in 1914, the working classes of Europe had gone on strike, if their parties had had urged them to do so, the factories could not have worked to create the materials that were needed for war, the soldiers would not have turned up to fill up the ranks of the armies, because the European armies depended on their reserves to come back to the colours. The French military was so worried about that, they assumed that something like 20% of their soldiers would simply not turn up. Um, When it actually happened, less than 0.5% failed to turn up. Um, The power of nationalism proved to be much stronger than that of international brotherhood, but that wasn't known at the time. And so there were very real and very visible forces for peace before 1914. Having said that, and that's what we always have to take into account, Europe was also unstable at times. Like every society, it had its tensions. And like every society, there were those who were dissatisfied with the present state of affairs, whether they felt that society was unjust and needed to be changed, or whether they simply felt it was boring. And that, I think, we should never underestimate the second factor. Among a lot of the young in Europe, particularly those in the avant-garde, particularly those influenced by people like Friedrich Nietzsche, there was a sense that European society was almost too complacent and too prosperous and too dull. And so you've got people like Marinetti, the Italian futurist artist, saying war is the hygiene of civilization. It shakes you up. It makes something, it destroys the old. And and so there were those who, I think, felt that the very success of Europe was too bourgeois, too comfortable, and something they, they found very dull. And there were also those, of course, who were left behind by what had been very rapid change. The big landowners, The price of land was going down and down because agriculture was no longer paying as it once had. With all the new agricultural areas opening up around the world, cheap food grains were flooding into Europe and depressing the price of agricultural produce in Europe. And so you do get, and the cherry orchard really is about this, people having to sell up the family estates because they can no longer afford to maintain them. And there was a sense among the old landed families that their Livelihood was being undercut. And these were the people who continued in many countries to dominate the military, continued to dominate the civil service, continued to dominate the foreign offices. And so there was, I think, a reaction 
among many of them to what was happening. And they did, not all, but there was a tendency for people to support more reactionary parties, which were profoundly anti-democratic, anti-constitutional, and increasingly anti-Semitic. And so I think the very rapid changes in European society were, of course, not pleasing everyone. And there were also people like the artisans, the small shopkeepers, whose livelihoods were being challenged by cheap mass-produced goods. And again, you see it in the sort of political parties they supported. The mayor, right-wing and anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna, Karl Luger, was supported by such people who came to blame unfairly everything they disliked in the world changing around them on the Jews. Um, they came unfairly to blame um, the faults of capitalism on the Jews. And so you get this very, very um, dangerous and, of course, para- more than dangerous, um, deadly alliance in thinking, people making, making the jump between what they disliked about capitalism and blaming the Jews for it, which was going to uh, come back, of course, with such dreadful effects after the First World War. And so there were these tensions in society, and there were also fears. Um, Europe was confident, it was prosperous, it was progressive, but it was also fearful. There were fears among a lot of the upper classes that there was going to be a revolution, fears that their own working classes could not be trusted, fears that they could not any, any longer contain them. In 1914, as war was about to break out, the German high command had to be talked out of, suspending the constitution, dissolving the unions, cracking down on the left-wing leaders. And this, I think, very much was a product of fear, that these people were somehow not patriotic, somehow wanted to change societies. And so there was a very dangerous thinking, again among those often from the old upper classes, thinking that actually a war might be a good thing, because it would enable us to deal with some of the unruly elements in society. And there was also a fear of more than revolution, I think. There was a fear of terrorism, international terrorism, which, which is oddly reminiscent or echoes it in, in our present day, a fear that there are these international terrorist networks. And this was a period in which there were considerable terrorist outrages. Um, a number of kings were killed, a number of prime ministers were assassinated, a man threw a bomb onto the floor of the Paris Stock Exchange. Um, in Paris, there was another murder where a man, a terrorist, walked into a cafe and killed the first person he saw because he said to kill a member of the bourgeoisie is a good thing. It doesn't matter who it is. And so this very prosperous and progressive society was also uneasy. There were these fears, fears of people within, fears of people who may look like us but, but could turn out to be terrorists. And so you do get a reaction in Europe Um, There's also another sort of fear, and that fear is that somehow Europe's very success is doing something very bad to the Europeans. There's a lot of learned medical opinion about how society is moving too fast, not just changing too fast, but literally moving too fast. When the Paris Metro opened in 1900, there were alarmist articles in the Paris press about how going too fast on, on the Paris Metro will do very strange things to your internal organs. Cars were too fast. Aeroplanes, which were just coming in, were too fast. And a new disease called neurasthenia made its appearance, where the nerves were said to be jangled by speed. Um, And something, it was feared, was happening to human nature in Europe. Tremendous worry about degeneration. In fact, a very popular book was written by a doctor in Budapest, Max Nordau, called Degeneration. And it went into many editions in many languages. And he argued that human, the human race, or the human race says, because Europeans tended to divide up 
different, uh, different nations into different races, that the different nations of Europe or the different races of Europe was somehow becoming degenerate, that the very success in providing material comforts, in providing better housing, in providing clean water, in providing modern medicine, meant the people getting soft. And there is a considerable fear before 1914, again, not surprisingly in military circles, in, in ruling circles, that the general populace, and particularly the young men, are getting too soft. Will they be able to fight? Will they make the sort of soldiers you need? If they live in cities, won't they get very weedy? And there are actually articles like this saying, you look at the hollow-chested, pale young men in the cities and wonder if they'll ever be able to be turned into soldiers. And what we need are healthy peasants. And of course, there are fewer and fewer healthy peasants in Western European societies these days. And so there is concern. When the British try and increase military enrollment during the South African War, the Boer War, between 1899 and 1902, there is a lot of comment in the press about how they have to reject so many of the young men who volunteer because they're simply not tall enough, not strong enough, um, not healthy enough. And so there is, I think, considerable fear that somehow in a dangerous way the Europeans are degenerating. In 1905, a young British conservative published a pamphlet called The Decline and Fall of the British Empire, and some of his chapter headings will give you a sense of what he was concerned about. And I'll just read out one to you. Um, one of his chapters was called The Prevalence of Town Over Country Life and Its Disastrous Effect Upon the Faith and Health of the British People. Um, you could probably find young conservatives in Britain who would write something similar today. But this was a fear. And this is why these paramilitary organizations such as the Boy Scouts were set up to try and inculcate um, healthy living and the correct attitude towards sacrifice and discipline um, into the young as a counteraction, as, as, a, as, a, as a counter to the degenerating factors of modern life. The leading German authority on military tactics, whose book on tactics was used in the German military in the years before 1914, wrote in the, in, in the first volume of this massive work, the steadily improving standards of living tend to increase the instinct of self-preservation and to diminish the spirit of self-sacrifice. The fast manner of living at the present day undermines the nervous system. The fanaticism and religious and national enthusiasm of a bygone age are lacking. And finally, the physical powers of the human species are also partly diminishing. And I think it's not accident at all or coincidence that the first International Eugenics Congress is held in London in 1912. There's a real concern about the human race, particularly, of course, your own branch of it. That Congress was held in the Royal Albert Hall, which is a very big place indeed, and its honorary patrons included Winston Churchill, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty in charge of the British Navy, the president of Harvard University, and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor. So this was not just a fringe movement. This idea that somehow the human race needed to be tended as you would tend uh, a garden full of potatoes or as you would try and breed um, better animals was something that, that was, I think, very widespread. What you also had, I think, and I'd just like to pick out three of them, is three very important sets of ideas which tended to push... Europe in a more unstable direction. And my own view is that ideas are very important. How people think about themselves, how they think about others, how they think about how the world works affects the way in which they make decisions. And I think there are three that I think were, were very important. First of these is militarism. 
along with the belief that Europe had become a more peaceful continent, um, was co it, it, they went in, it, they, 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 they existed in, in separate silos, if you like, but it was there, was militarism. And this is militarism in two senses. One in the sense of wanting societies to absorb what are seen as military values, the Boy Scouts, for example, believing that the sorts of qualities that the military exemplify, spirit of discipline, self-sacrifice, being ready to follow orders, um, being prepared to, to give up your life for your country or for a cause without question, there was a lot of talk about how society needed those values as well. And if you look at pictures of school children, particularly boys in the period before 1914, you will be struck in Europe by how many of them wore what looked like military uniforms. You know, they, 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 this was simply part of society. And if you look at the pictures of the heads of state, many, of course, whom were hereditary monarchs, they almost always wore uniform. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm is very rarely seen out of uniform. Um, he was perhaps a particular example of this because he loved uniforms. He collected them. But I think you do see a sense in which military values were held up as the values that society should follow and, and did, in fact, permeate uh, significant parts of society. But there's militarism in another sense, and that is that the military themselves are seen as the best part of the nation and in some way being above question. And this was particularly true in certain continental countries. In, the British have never valued their army as much. Um, they've always seen it as, as a danger. A big army, they think, is trouble. But what they've done is, is put all their effort into their navy. But certainly in Germany, the military occupied a very particular place. The military in Germany were based around the old Prussian army. The German army was really the Prussian army, but, but enlarged. And the Prussian army had always had a special part in Prussia, which became, Prussia itself became, of course, the core of the new Germany. There used to be a joke, in fact, that Prussia is not a nation that happens to have an army, it's an army that happens to have a nation. And I think there's something in it. Without its army, Prussia would never have survived as a nation because it was a, a disconnected set of territories without natural defenses. It was really the, the Prussian army that kept Prussia the nation in being and helped to bring, played a key role in bringing Germany into existence. That was dangerous because you had, on both the part of the civilian authorities and on the part of the military themselves, the sense that they were somehow the noblest part of the nation. They were above reproach. The military did not want to be questioned by the civilians. And because of the nature of the German constitution, the Kaiser, the German, the German monarch, the German emperor, had a particular relationship with the military. They answered to him. They did not answer to the parliament, to the Reichstag. The Reichstag had the obligation or was expected to vote money for them but could not question the, the military. And this was particularly the army. The navy was, was generally less important in Germany. The army did not see that it should be questioned by the civilians. What is more, the civilians tended, at least those in government office, tended to accept that. And so you have a tremendous, in my view, failure on the part of the German civilian government in failing to acquaint itself with what the military were planning. The military made their plans. Their view was, we make the military plans. It is up to the civilians to follow along with what we decide to do. And the civilians, I think, fatally accepted that point of view. And so when the German military felt, faced the dilemma of fighting a two-front war, once France and Russia became allies, which they did by, 19, by, by the beginning of the, of the 20th century, 
The German dilemma was that they had Russia on the border in the east because there was no Poland between them. And then, of course, they had France, which was determined, um, if not determined on revenge, extremely hostile to Germany in the west. And the German nightmare was having to fight a two-front war. And so what the military decided to do, and the plan was, was pretty much perfected by 1914, was to fight a holding action against Russia where the distances were much greater and fight very, very hard with the bulk of their forces, nine-tenths of their forces in the West. Their plan was to defeat France in about 40 days, and then they could move those forces over to deal with Russia. To get at France, they decided, the German military, that the best invasion route was to come in through Belgium. Now, that was perfectly sensible militarily, but it was a disastrous decision in international terms. Belgium was a neutral country. Its neutrality was guaranteed by a number of European nations, including Germany itself. And so what the German military were proposing to do was that Germany violate the neutrality of a country which it had guaranteed without any concern for the consequences. It is likely, I think, that Britain would have found it difficult to come into the war against Germany if Germany had not invaded Belgium. The invasion of Belgium was going to be one of the factors that helped to swing British public opinion. The civilians in Germany didn't know about this until 1912. When they did find out, they said, well, if that's what the military say they need, our, our, our role is, is to help them get it. And I think this is a real failure. And this is, I think, the other side of militarism. It's not just military values going into society. It's the military seeing themselves in particular countries as being, in some ways, above any question and any, any reproach. The second thing, which is tied to it, of course, is, is nationalism. The period before 1914 was a period of heightened nationalism. And I think there are all sorts of explanations for this. It's partly to do with spreading of mass communications. It's in this period that mass newspapers begin to appear with circulations in the millions. The spreading of literacy, so more and more people are able to read the newspapers. In countries, more and more people are being able to find out what their countries are doing and what other countries are doing. And increasingly, they're identifying with their countries. And this is also promoted by education in the schools and the universities. Education in European schools before 1914 was highly nationalistic. The histories that were taught were almost entirely national history. They were not histories of Europe. There weren't histories of Europe and the Renaissance or Europe and the Reformation. These were histories of Germany, histories of France, histories of Britain, histories of Italy, histories of Russia. Even in mathematics, you got it. I've seen an example of a French textbook which said to its little readers, if it takes one Frenchman to defeat five Germans, how many will it take to defeat ten Germans? So you get this heightened nationalism coming in, even to things like mathematics. And that, I think, was a very, very dangerous factor because more and more European countries were moving towards greater participation by the electorate you're really seeing now the growth of something called a public opinion, and governments are increasingly finding themselves being pushed by their own public opinions. And so the Germans have to deal with an army lobby, which keeps on demanding more spending on the army, a colonial lobby, which demands more colonies, even though the German government often thinks that colonies and more spending on the military are not what they want to do. They're being pushed. And, of course, the navy lobby in Germany is enormously important, and there's a very, very vociferous... Um, lobby group, a Navy League in Germany, which helps to push for the building of the great German Navy, which then, of course, helps to 
set off a reaction in Britain and drive Britain closer to France and Russia. And so nationalism, I think, is a very, very dangerous factor in this period. And it's an unreasoning sort of nationalism. It's assuming that there has always been something called a German people, always been something called a French people, always been something called a British people, always been something called an Italian people, which is historically wrong. And Europeans have come and gone across territory over the centuries. It's very hard to identify people who've always been on one bit of territory, um, whose descendants are also on that bit of territory. But that is the sort of history and the sort of nationalist view that was being taken. And what was also being posited was that there are certain national characteristics. Now, if you wrote about your own national characteristics, of course, they were very noble and, and good ones. If someone else wrote about your national characteristics, they were quite the opposite. And so you would get, for example, the learned German professor who said with great confidence, the French have always, down through history for centuries, been an idle and a frivolous and immoral people. And he added, one of my favorite bits, he said to his readers, if you want to know where you can see examples of French frivolity and immorality, I can tell you exactly where to go in Paris. <laughs> but you got French professors saying as silly things. Um, a French ethnographer, and then this was quite a popular view in France, said you have to really look at the landscape from which the Prussians come. And, and for the French, the Prussians were really the heart of Germany, and they were the people they, they disliked and feared most. He said the trouble with the Prussians is they come, by and large, from a very flat landscape. And so they don't see mountains and they don't see depths. They have, therefore, no sense of good and evil. You know, and we look at it now and we think, how could people believe this stuff? But these were influential people. I mean, these were people who were teaching the young. These were people who were shaping public opinion. What you also get added into this mix of militarism and nationalism is, is social Darwinism, which I think was, was very, very strong indeed. This misapplication of Darwinian ideas about evolution to what were called the human species. And this idea that you can, in fact, divide up the French the Germans, the British, into completely different species, as if they were uh, giraffes and elephants and, and cats, um, you know, capable of, of intermarrying, um, not sharing the same, the same sort of qualities at all. And this was very, very dangerous. And what you got was the view that a nation is fixed in its characteristic. What you also got was the view that just as in nature species have often natural predators, so the human, the separate human species, have natural enemies, hereditary enemies. And so German military attaches in Paris would send reports back to Berlin saying, of course, we're dealing with the French, but what can you do? They're, they are our hereditary enemy. And you got French military attaches in Berlin saying very much the same thing in the reports that they sent back to Paris. And I found that very dangerous when I looked at it because it seems to assume that war is inevitable that what can you do? These people are our enemies, they're opposed to us, they're always going to be opposed to us, there's going to be no, no dealing with them. What you also got, and this is a sort of mix of nationalism and social Darwinism and militarism, I think is the feeling that war is in some ways the highest thing that a nation can do, that a nation does not deserve to survive that won't struggle for itself. And this again Comes, you, you get this, this, this phrase which comes from Darwin, the struggle, the, the struggle for survival. Um, those who aren't prepared to struggle for survival are going to disappear. And in the case of the human species, there's, all, there's a moral component here. If you don't struggle, you don't deserve to survive. You deserve 
to be taken over. Now, the, such ideas, of course, found particular appeal among the military because it seemed to justify what they were doing. If war is something a nation must do, then it justified their existence. But it really went down through society. I was shown, after I finished my book, I think, um, the, the diaries, the unpublished diaries of a young British officer in the First World War who was keeping a diary which he then sent back to his family. And he talks about the Western Front and he says the sorts of things we would expect, that it was awful, it was difficult, it was very, very unpleasant. But he then says, but that's the law of nature, isn't it? We have to struggle, that life is about struggle. And so I think these social Darwinist ideas allied to nationalism and allied to these ideas that somehow the military represent the best part of the nation was a very toxic mix in, in, in Europe before the First World War. It didn't, in my view, lead to the war itself, but what it did was prepare people psychologically for the fact that war was going to come. And, of course, the final thing I think we have to remember here is that those who assumed that war was a positive good, assumed that it might come, also assumed, by and large, that it would be short. And, of course, that was the fatal mistake that they were all going to make. They had been warned. They had seen examples of wars that had dragged on. They'd seen the American Civil War. Large numbers of European military came to observe the U.S. Civil War. And the military academies, particularly in countries such as Russia, studied the American Civil War to try and understand why it went on for so long, why it was becoming so difficult to attack a well-defended position. And they had later wars to look at. They looked at the Russo-Japanese War, where the Japanese took hideous losses as they tried to storm very well-defended Russian positions. They looked at the wars in the Balkans in 1912 and 1913 and again saw the sorts of losses that the combination of well-prepared defenses and modern firepower could inflict on attackers, and they tended to write them off. Um, they looked at the Russo-Japanese war, the, the, the European military planners, and they said, yes, but in the end, the Japanese won. It shows that you can win, you just have to prepare to take huge losses. And so what we need to do is inculcate the right spirit into our soldiers so that they will take the sorts of losses that the Japanese could take. All the military plans of the European powers by 1914 were for an offensive war, and they all assumed that they would win a decisive victory. In a way, I think they had to assume that because the alternative, that they could never win a victory, that the war would just drag on was something they didn't want to think about. But that, again, I think feeds in to the catastrophe, for that's what it was, of 1914. The final crisis came, as you know, in the summer of 1914, and I think two things helped to affect the decisions that were made then. One is that they'd had previous crises and they'd got through them. And that's what they were remembering. They were remembering that they almost had a war in 1908. They almost had a war in 1911. There was certainly talk of it. It was almost a general war in 1912, almost a general war in 1913. The danger of that was that by 1914, people said, well, it's just another crisis in the Balkans. Um, it will be over. And as the crisis dragged on, people said, well, anyway, it's too late in the summer to fight a war, and so they'll have to settle it. And so I think there was a very dangerous complacency. But there were also those by 1914 who said, look, we want a war. If we're going to have a general war, let's get it over with. And so you had people in Berlin, for example, in the military and the German general staff saying to their own government, Russia is developing so fast and getting so strong and has so much more manpower than us, 
If we don't fight them now, we won't be able to do it by 1917. And so... The complacency allied to this sense that maybe the time has come now really to get this settled, um, just get it done. And so Europe went from the assassination of the Archduke on the 28th of June in five weeks. It's not very long. It's terrifying how short it is. Slid into a war, which I think a lot of people didn't want. And one of the things that historians have done, and I think perhaps where the interesting new research has been, is to look at reactions of ordinary people Um, This old view that people cheered and shouted and threw flowers around when war broke out in 1914 is, I think, now much modified. A lot of people were stunned. They were shocked. They couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, Unfortunately, they were then going to have four years and more of it. So it was a catastrophe. I don't think it had to happen. I think it reached a point where a lot of people thought, well, let's just get it over with. And I think there were those, of course, who positively wanted it. But I think also there were the decisions and the accidents that were made. If the Archduke's driver had not taken the wrong turning in Sarajevo on June the 28th, 1914, the assassination wouldn't have happened, and Austria-Hungary would not have had the excuse it wanted to go to war. If Germany had not given Austria-Hungary its backing in the famous blank check, I think Austria-Hungary would not have gone ahead and it would not have become a general war. If Russia had had a war plan that enabled it to mobilize just against Austria-Hungary rather than a war plan which meant that it had to mobilize against Germany as well as Austria-Hungary, I think Germany would not have had the excuse it needed. If Germany had had a war plan which enabled it to fight only against Russia and not against France rather than a war plan which fought them both at once, then I think a general war might not have occurred. I think it was probably likely by the beginning of August, but up to that point, I'd like to think at least it can be avoided. And I think we have to keep hoping that because if they got into a war without really meaning it, um, let's hope um, we won't do something as stupid again. On that cheerful note, I'll end. I think there are a couple of microphones on either side, and I've been asked to um, suggest that you ask questions rather than make statements. Thank you very much for a wonderful lecture. One of the evolutions of that war is the elimination of the monarchy in a number of countries, of Germany, Austro-Hungary, Russia. Did that create a void that eventually leads to World War II? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I, I don't think... My own view is it was actually probably a good thing that monarchies went in most countries when you look at the mess they'd made of it. Um, I think the First World War doesn't lead directly to the Second World War, but it helps to create the conditions which make it possible. And what you had, I think, in Europe after 1918 is, is the disappearance of the monarchies is one thing. I think probably more dangerous are two things. One, the collapse and disappearance of the empires in the center of Europe. Um, Germany was partly an empire because it controlled part of Poland. Um, Russia, of course, was an empire. Um, The key one, of course, was Austria-Hungary. And what that left was um, ethnically-based national states, which were by their very nature unstable because the mix of population in the center of Europe was so, um, so great that there were ethnic minorities in every state, which was a formula for trouble once you get ethnically-based states. Mm. And so the Hungarians would um, 
involve themselves. People in Hungary would worry about or, or, or get involved with what was happening to Hungarians in Slovakia. Um, Germany increasingly saw itself as the protector of Germans living in these new states in the center of Europe. And that was dangerous. And those states quarreled with each other rather than trying to form some sort of Central European Union. I think what was also very dangerous about the First World War is that it left behind this legacy of cynicism and violence. I think politics becomes a lot more violent and people are more prepared to resort to violence. And you get the paramilitaries fighting in the streets. Um, You get in Italy and Germany and other countries as well. Um, political forces dressing up in military uniform and going out in military formation to beat up their opponents. And I think that helps to weaken the forces of constitutionalism and, and democracy. And I think, you know, I think there, there was a, a sense that the First World War hadn't really settled anything and had left a lot of bad feeling behind and a lot of resentment behind. My own feeling is that Europe still could have pulled out of it. Um, there was the rebuilding of the 1920s. Germany did gradually become part of the European community again and joined the League of Nations. Um, There was an economic recovery. I think by 1925, um, economic output was back to what it had been before 1914. And the League of Nations, which we see as a failure, was not seen as a failure in the 1920s. I think if it hadn't been for the Great Depression, Europe might have been able to continue to rebuild itself after that great conflict. But what the Great Depression did was, in certain countries, simply destroy Um, the forces of of law and order and stability and opened the door for these radical uh, movements of either the right or the left. And I think that's what really took Europe down that road in the 1930s. I think Hitler and the Nazis would not have got into power in Germany without the Depression um, and also without some very stupid human decisions. You know, they were invited in by um, conservatives who thought they could use Hitler, which was the biggest mistake they ever made. Um, And many of them paid for it. So I think a number of things. Thank you. Wonderful book, wonderful lecture. Thank you. In your book, you talk about Kaiser Wilhelm, and you talk about maybe if there had been a different leader in Germany, something would have been different. Say more. Thank you. I think, you know, in some countries it doesn't matter all that much who the leader is, or or, or even in democracies it does matter. But the the trouble, I think, with with Germany was that it was an imperfect constitution, which left too much power in the hands of the monarch. And the Reichstag, which was moving in the direction of trying to get more control over the government, was was not yet in that position. I mean, the, the ministers were appointed by the Kaiser and answered to him, and he could dismiss them. Now, that was all right if you had a reasonable Kaiser, which Wilhelm II's grandfather had been. His own father, I think, might have been a good Kaiser, but we'll never know because he died very soon after he'd taken the throne. And so you've got Wilhelm II, who was psychologically very disturbed and, I think, very erratic and who tended to act in a belligerent way. Often, in fact, he didn't want war, but he tended to talk as if he did, and so he helped to create the impression of a Germany that was somehow slightly out of control. And he he protected the army. He protected the army and and the navy, which was also um, one of his great enthusiasms. He protected them from the sort of scrutiny which they should have, in my view, in in properly functioning constitutional governments. I mean, Germany had a strong... Um, democratic traditions. The Reichstag was, was elected by universal manhood suffrage. And so if it had had time, it might well have begun to get the Kaiser and his government under control, but it didn't have time. And so I think in certain countries, the, the personalities of the leaders do matter. 
And in both Russia, well, in all three of Russia, Austria, Hungary, and Germany, under the Constitution, it was the monarch who had to sign the order to go to war, or the equivalent order. In Britain, it didn't matter. I mean, George V did what he was told by his ministers. And so his personality matters much less. It, it's, I think, really matters in the case of, of Russia, Germany, and Austria, Hungary because of the power they have and, and because of the, the, the ways they can use it. Thank you. Can you talk about some of the resentments that the Allies had against the Germans leading up to World War I, uh, especially the French? For example, I believe there was a war in like 1871 or in the 1870s yeah. where the Germans just smashed the French in something yeah. like a day and made them pay like an yeah. exorbitant uh, yeah. amount of money afterwards. Yeah. And so some, some of those things yeah. that led up to, yeah. to the war militarily. Well, it's so interesting because, you know, the old view used to be that Germany was bent on revenge, and some historians would still argue this. I mean, we, we argue about this the whole time. Um, my view is that if you look at French public opinion, by 1914, a, a whole, two or three generations had come since then. I mean, there were people around who still remembered the defeat of 1870-71, and it was a terrific defeat for France and, and a, a national humiliation. But there was a whole younger generation to whom it didn't mean that much. Alsace and Lorraine had been taken from, from, from France and were part of Germany. But, you know, a lot of people were sort of beginning to forget about that. And even uh, Raymond Poincaré, the French president in 1914, who came from Alsace, came from Lorraine, said, you know, it, it, I, I regret the loss, but it's not worth going to war for. And now whether he was just being uh, duplicitous, I don't know. But I think, you know, as time had gone by, and there were always those in France who said, you know, we have a natural alliance with Germany. Um, you know, they have, the, they, we have, they have the coal, we have the steel mills. Um, you know, we, we could be doing a lot together. And so I don't think it was foreordained that those two had to go down that road or that France was all bent on, on, on revenge. I mean, there were a lot of French people who didn't want a war in 1914. Um, as far as the British are concerned, I mean, the curious thing really is that the natural alliance in many ways in Europe between, was between Britain and Germany. You know, they had a lot in common. They were both predominantly Protestant countries. Their royal families, of course, were, were, were you know, intimately linked. Um, Germany had the world's, the, the Europe's biggest army, uh, Britain had the world's biggest navy, and so in a way you could see a real synergy there. I think what, what turned Britain against Germany was the German decision to start building a, a blue water navy, a big navy. Because for Britain the navy wasn't just a luxury, the, for Britain the navy was something that protected it, protected its empire, protected its trade. And so when Germany built a big navy and said, well, don't worry, we, you know, we're not threatening Britain. And the British looked at where the Navy would come out. I mean, the Navy is going to come out straight into the North Sea off the British coast. You know, from the British point of view, the existence of a big German deepwater Navy was, 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 was a menace. And so that pushed Britain to doing something which was absolutely improbable in 1900 of getting closer to France. You know, and the British and the French have fought each other for centuries. But because of Germany, they suddenly discover that they, they're their best friends. And the same thing with Russia. I mean, the British and the Russians had been tremendous rivals in the Central Asia. Center of Asia, one of the great British fears was that Russia would come down through Central Asia and menace India. And again, because of Germany, the British moved towards this very peculiar friendship with both Britain and France. And so, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting and rather fluid period. And it was possible always those, those alliances could be reversed. The British kept talking to the Germans about trying to sort out their differences. And the British and the Russians were, in fact, on such bad terms by 1914 that a lot of the British felt that the, that, that friendship was about to, to blow up. And so I don't think that the way things played out had to be the case. Again, I think there were decisions. So, yeah. 
follow up on that. Do you think, as I understand it, the British do not enter the war for two weeks in World War One? The Brits do not enter the war in, in, in at the end of yeah. uh, beginning of August. They take two weeks to do it. Yeah. And there's some thought uh, that the Germans were thinking that the Brits might not enter the war, that they might yeah. stay out of it. And, and yeah. what burden does Britain bear by not fully declaring itself and could have turned it the other way? Well, that's an argument that Neil Ferguson's often made. That if the, the well, he argues that the British shouldn't have gone in ever. Um, and others have argued that if the British had made their position clear earlier on, the Germans might have, have thought. Um, on the second one, the British couldn't make their position clear because they, they didn't have a clear position. Um, in Britain, well, I, I, I don't mean that um, as cynically as it sounds. In Britain, there was a real cabinet decision. I mean, they agonized over what to do. And they, they met the whole weekend. It was very, very unusual. The cabinet never met on a weekend. And they met on Saturday the 1st of August, Saturday, Sunday the 2nd. Um, they were meeting on Monday the 3rd because they couldn't decide what to do. Um, there was a strong anti-war. It was a liberal government. There was a strong anti-war side in the Liberal Party. And four cabinet ministers threatened to resign and did, in fact, resign. And there was a fear that the party would split and that the government would, would fall. And so it really wasn't until the afternoon of the 3rd of the Monday, the 3rd of August, that the British cabinet decided that it would, in fact, um, enter the war to defend Belgian neutrality. And so for, for, for Sir Edward Grey, the British foreign secretary, or Asquith, uh, Henry Asquith, the British prime minister, to have said something before that would have actually caused them real political trouble because they would have been going ahead of what their party and their government would support. Um, so for the British, it really was a very difficult decision. How much the Germans worried about it is very difficult to tell. Um, what the Germans worried about was a British naval blockade if the war went on, because that would and did, in fact, um, begin to hurt them. But the German military plan was, was premised on, on swift victory, and they didn't think the British army was worth anything. Um, you know, a lot of German officers said, oh, we'll let them send it over and we'll you know, send a policeman to arrest them. Um, you know, they really felt the British army was negligible. And the Kaiser actually you know, said, again, in one of his far too many public statements, said this. So I think my feeling is the, British, the Germans weren't worried about the British army. They were worried about the British navy, but only if the war dragged on, which they prayed wouldn't happen. In fact, the British expeditionary force was, I think, very important. Um, the French were doing, of course, the bulk of the fighting, but the British Expeditionary Force did help to tilt the balance against Germany and disrupted the German war plans. And so I think it was an important um, factor, but not for the Germans, I think, didn't take it seriously. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, some historians said uh, Europe was sleepwalking through history in this period. Yeah. I'm wondering about the role of the uh, churches and some of the uh, political commentators, didn't they realize the destructiveness? Like you talked about the technology yeah. and how the world had changed? Yeah. Well, people did. Um, you know, there were a number of very important works written in this period. Um, there was someone called Ivan Bloch, who was a Russian financier. I mean, sort of the Russian equivalent of, of John D. Rockefeller, actually, sort of building railways and a huge industrialist and financier. And he wrote a massive six-volume thing on the future of war in which he said, look, you know, we're going to have a stalemate. Um, which is going to consume the young men, the men of, of Europe, and consume the resources. And he was dismissed. I mean, the military dismissed him. They said, what does he know? He's a civilian. Um, you know, he doesn't really understand military things. Um, there was a willingness on the part of the military to dismiss the evidence in front of their eyes. It's a very human failing. You know, you've made your plans. You're going to fight a, a, an offensive war. Um, 
you find it very difficult to think in another way. And I, I do think this is important. And so I think the military, although some of them, I think, in their inner hearts, really feared what was coming, um, were not prepared to contemplate fighting any other sort of war than an offensive war and hoping that it would be short. And so I do think there were warnings, but people just weren't listening to them. But no, there were certainly people in Europe who worried about it. But then, of course, what happened in the final crisis, it happens to all of us in a final crisis, we play no part. You know, whatever people are saying, it doesn't matter. The decisions are being made by a handful of people in, in rooms somewhere far away. And that, in the end, is what happened. What, so, just one point. What yeah. about the churches? Did they line up with their nations? Um, the churches played a very interesting role. I mean, the churches, a lot of the churches have been much involved in the peace movement. Um, but when the war came, a lot of the churches um, became great boosters of the war. I mean, there was at least initially in most of the countries in the war a sort of patriotic union and the churches exhorted young men to go and fight. Now, again, they sort of backed off, and a number of the most prominent people speaking against the war came from the churches as the war dragged on. Um, but initially, I mean, clergymen were getting up in pulpits and saying, you must go off and fight. Um, so, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you so much. That was a fun lecture. Uh, so in international relations, um, realist theory looks at the world in terms of, like, uh, great powers and um, sees the war as almost inevitable because of the degree of multipolarity in Europe at the time. So I was wondering, to what degree do you think that's helpful from a historical perspective when analyzing the war? Well, I, you know, the, the trouble I have with realists, and I, I speak as a historian, so you know, historians and political theorists don't get on all that well. Um, but Realists, whenever you challenge them, they, they sort of alter the theory a bit and they expand it a bit. So we get neo-realism neo and we get realism taking into account ideas and, you know, it's sort of endlessly sort of malleable. I mean, look, I think nations have interests and they try and protect them. But I do think the ways in which people think about how they protect those interests can vary from time to time. I mean, Paul Schroeder has written a very interesting book on the transformation of Europe from the 18th century to the mid-19th century where he says, and he argues very convincingly, that European statesmen in the 18th century who saw war as a zero-sum game, you know, I, I win, you lose, that, that's all there is to it, were thinking differently after the Napoleonic Wars. They were thinking that we all have something to gain by a stable international system, and we all have something to lose by a, a system that isn't stable. And so I do think, and I think you see it again after the Second World War, there is a recognition that if nations just blindly or, or, or narrowly defend their own interests, that they may in fact end up harming themselves because they help to create a situation that is unstable. And so I think when nations approach and statesmen approach the world, it's not ever from an entirely realist point of view. I think there's often um, a combination of, of um, wishful thinking and what sort of world we'd like to see. And, and people think in different categories in different times. I mean, what struck me so much in the period before 1914 is how people talked about honor the whole time, that the honor of the nation is at stake. That you know, you get the, the, the chief of the German, of the Austrian general staff saying, we'll probably disappear as an empire, but it will have been worth it for our honor. Um, I don't think you would necessarily get people talking in these terms today, although you might. Um, you know, you do, I think, sometimes get statesmen talking in terms of honor or prestige or credibility. So I think, you know, I think, I think, into, I, I, I think, if you see the situation before the First World War entirely in terms of national interests, you know, there was a recognition on the part of some nations and some statesmen that they all had something to gain by avoiding a war and by, by building a stable international system. But unfortunately, perhaps not enough of them thought it. So, 
Thank you.